0: Mike Tannenbaum built the best Jets teams of the 21st century, teams that almost made the Super Bowl. However, by the time he was fired in 2012, the Jets were in very bad condition, and to this date, they have not recovered. Today, we discuss the complicated legacy of the former Jets general manager on the Locked On Jets podcast. You are Locked On Jets,
1: your daily New York Jets podcast part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.
0: Welcome. This is the Locked On Jets Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. It's Thursday, June 30th, 2022, and I'm your host, John B. from gangreennation.com. I thank you for making the show your first listen or your first watch for free and available on all platforms. Big shout out to subscribers to this podcast. And to join that group, all you have to do is pound the subscribe button. You'll receive notifications as new episodes are posted. If you're watching on YouTube, please give the episode a big thumbs up. Helps the channel out and it helps other Jets fans find Locked On Jets. Today, we're talking about Mike Tannenbaum. Yesterday, we began a series looking at the past five Jets general managers. We discussed Terry Bradway. You can check that show out. If you want to take a look back in the feed today, we're moving on to Mike Tannenbaum. And I'm joined by my good friend, McGregor Wells, who writes with me at gang, greennation.com. We'll discuss Tannenbaum's complicated legacy. Mike Tannenbaum has a very complicated legacy. If you're a Jets fan under 50 years old, he's responsible for your greatest moments as of uh, watching this team. And even if you're older than 50 years old, those are still some of the best moments you've had as a fan. Tannenbaum came to the Jets in 1997. He had worked under Bill Belichick in Cleveland. Bill Parcells was hired as Jets head coach in 1997. Belichick came as his defensive coordinator. And Belichick brought a number of guys who had worked under him in Cleveland, including Scott Pioli and Eric Mangini. Unlike Pioli and Mangini, though, when Belichick was hired by New England in 2000 as their head coach, Tannenbaum stayed with the Jets. In 2003, when Bill Parcells was hired as Cowboys head coach, he wanted to bring Tandenbaum to Dallas to be his general manager. Tandenbaum, however, stayed with the Jets. Tandenbaum's legacy was kind of great with the Jets prior to his elevation to general manager in 2006. In fact, he's the guy who is frequently credited for the Jets signing Curtis Martin in 1998. Martin was a restricted free agent, so the Patriots had the opportunity to match any offer the Jets made. Tandenbaum came up with this provision, which was something to the effect of this contract is void after one year, but only if Curtis Martin is a member of the new England Patriots at that time. In fact, the league changed the rules. You're not allowed to do that anymore because of what Tannenbaum did. He came up with this brilliant, uh, this, this brilliant provision that prevented new England from, from retaining Curtis Martin and Martin of course, went on to have a hall of fame career with the jets. After the 2005 season, the jets let Herman Edwards go to Kansas city. In fact, they got a draft pick in return for Herman Edwards they hired Eric Mangini, and shortly after that, Tannenbaum was elevated to the general manager, manager job. Terry Bradway, who had been the general manager, moved into a senior scouting role. And at the beginning of each of these shows, I try and tell you what the theory was behind the hire, why they thought it was going to be great. And I can tell you, in 2006, the theory behind Tannenbaum was he—they were pairing him with Mangini. They was, were both young guys. They were viewed as up-and-comers in the NFL. It was the next—it was supposed to be the next great. Tandem, the next great general manager, head coach, Tandem, the next genius uh, next genius Tandem, if you will. McGregor, where where do we begin? Mike Tannenbaum, Jets GM, 2006.
1: Yeah, I think um, one of the things they they thought they had in Tannenbaum was a, a contract and cap expert, which they didn't have with Bradway. And so it was, sort of was uh, one of the problems with Bradway is he didn't have anything good going on outside of his talent evaluation. So they thought, you know, keep Bradway on, have Tannenbaum come in with his expertise, Keep them together, and maybe it works out really well. And um, actually, you know, for quite a while, it did. You, you hit on hit the nail on the head with the uh, the legacy of Tanenbaum. He presided over the, really the best stretch of Jets football outside of the late 60s. Um, it was uh, he parted a tremendous amount of talent early on, but his downfall was his drafting. In the end, the draft was just terrible for him.
0: <laughs> And it began with one of the best drafts in Jets history in two thousand six, because with his first pick, they drafted to Brickershaw Ferguson. And I have to admit, I really wanted either Matt Leinart or Vince Young. Like I wanted a quarterback that year. Pennington was coming off a career threatening injury. He did not know what you had in him. He went left to tackle to Brickershaw Ferguson. Ended up being one hundred percent the right pick. Ferguson played ten years. He missed one play, which was not due to injury. It was due to, it was because the Jets ran a trick play at the end of a season with the second first round pick a pick they got uh, for John Abraham. It was, I think it was like a three team trade. Uh, Abraham went to Atlanta. The Jets ended up getting Denver's first round pick. They drafted Nick Mangold. And even after that, past the first round, he drafted four really solid role players. He drafted Eric Smith, who we'll talk about some of the downfalls of Eric Smith because Eric Smith is a name that has a bad reputation among Jets fans, but Eric Smith was a valuable role player when the Jets understood what his capabilities were and played within those. They got Leon Washington, an explosive running back who was probably underutilized. Brad Smith, uh, you know, the, the nickname was the Swiss Army Knife. He could do a little bit of everything. And even to a lesser extent, Drew Coleman, who, you know, had a few moments as a, a as a slot corner for this team. So first draft, he hits it out of the park. Yeah, it was a tremendous draft. And uh,
1: yeah, good things going on with that year. And uh, just um, 2007 was also a great draft. Brought in DeRoe Revis. Um, and and um and David Harris, but he traded away a lot of draft picks to get those guys. And um from then on it was just a disaster in the draft. But going back to 2006 2006 they got Nick Mangold and um Rick, Rick and then they, you know, for th- through the next two years they got um they got brought in Pete Kendall, right? And they and they got um um Damian Woody. They built the best offensive line of football for those three years but with um with Tannebum. I mean, it was it was the start of something really big and it's uh, it started with the two draft picks, but yeah the the 2000 draft pick uh, draft was just a trem- 2006 draft was just a tremendous start to the of Bonier
0: and they made the playoff and you have to understand in 2006 everybody thought the Jets were going to be the worst team in the league they did not have much cap flexibility they had gone for it in 2005 they made a bunch of aggressive moves they they they, they were four and twelve yeah you know, part of this is Chad Pennington comes back from surgery and it has a good year. It wasn't spectacular. I mean, Pennington was clearly a limited player at that point. They did also have a very weak schedule that year. I mean, they they beat up on on some bad competition, but they came out of nowhere and, and uh, made the playoffs at 10 and six. And, and it was also Eric Mangini's first year. And I remember, you know, I go to the Jets training camp for a couple of days every year. And I remember talking a few years ago with somebody I know who works for the Jets. And I was, we were talking about that year. And I said, yeah, yeah you guys were expected to be the worst team in the league that year. And the response I got from the guy from who works with the Jets was, yeah. And we had the talent to be the worst team in the league that year. <laughs> they kind of came out of nowhere. Um, and now you mentioned Oh seven, they trade, they, they do a couple trade-offs. They get Darrell Revis and David Harris. I think what's interesting about Tannenbaum is there's always been this theory that, and I, I don't buy into it. I'm interested in your thoughts. I'll explain to you why I don't buy into it a little bit, but I want to get your thoughts on this first. There was this theory that he was, you know, Mangini was kind of like the brains behind the operation. And that's why drafting went south um, once Mangini left. I, I don't buy into that theory. I have multiple reasons for that, uh, but I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't buy that at all. I mean, Mangini didn't have any success after he left the Jets.
1: Um, He was really uh, rather poor after he left the Jets. Um, And I just – look, the bottom line is they had Bradway still there, right, who was the former GM. They had Tannenbaum. These are the guys running the draft. Yes, you get input from the head coach. But the bottom line is the buck stops with the GM. And I don't think it was Mangini making these picks. I think it was Tannenbaum and his staff.
0: The other the other point I, I make is, and we're going a little now. We're moving to two thousand eight. If you want to give, you want to say the drafting was all Mangini. Well, Mangini was the coach when they drafted Vernon Golston. You know, nobody ever, nobody with that theory ever mentions that. Uh,
1: yeah, the whole two
0: thousand eight draft was a disaster. It was terrible. It was yeah. ugly. And I feel yeah. like you know, Tannenbaum had this success with these early moves, and I feel like he almost took the wrong lessons from them because if you look at like, a lot of the the theory behind his moves, if you if you look at some of the stylistic things he do, did. It wasn't that different from later in his tenure. It's just the results weren't there. You know, we mentioned the trade-ups in 2007. It worked great. They got Terrell Revis and David Harris, two guys who were great Jets. And you can do that once in a while. You know, you can have a three-man draft. I think Chancy Stuckey was the other pick who they ended up trading for Braylon Edwards down the line. Uh, you know, you could have a three-man draft class once in a while, but nobody's a good enough talent evaluator to constantly have great drafts when you're only thinking three or four picks and I'll even go a step further you know you look at to the 2008 offseason they were very aggressive in free agency And they made a lot of great as you mentioned I mean they got Alan Fanica they got Damian what Wood. Damian Woody's really interesting player if you ever follow the trajectory of his career is the real guy from the offensive line who moved from the outside in he began his career at center then moved to guard then tackle um Calvin Pace was a good signing that year Tony Richardson, uh, it was a fullback. He didn't have that big of an impact on the field, but everybody around the team would tell you that he was a huge part of the leadership group in that locker room for the subsequent success they had. And then in August of that year, there was another big name who was brought in, Brett Favre.
1: Yeah, and Brett Favre was, you know, tremendous. Well, that's, that's an overtake. He wasn't tremendous, but he was good enough to get to the Jets to eight and three, they got to eight and three. Uh, they played the Titans and beat the crap out of them. Um, and then Titans were, Titans were ten and zero at that time too. Yes, yes. So the Jets were being talked about as a legitimate Super Bowl contender at that point. And then probably got hurt his shoulder and refused to come out of the lineup. And the rest his history. They ended the season one or four. And it was, you know, it was, they didn't make the playoffs, but it was unfortunate.
0: I actually, so I have a, I have a different take because I think that there is this revisionist history about, and this is about more about Mangini than it is Tannenbaum, but like, I think there's this huge revisionist history about the 2008 season that, oh well, Mangini was on his way and then Favre got hurt and everything was ruined. And I put a lot of the blame for that team's collapse on Mangini I, from a couple of standpoints. Is first of all, the defense was the 18th ranked scoring defense in the league. And they had a lot of talent on, I mean, it was... Bart Scott was not there. Jim Leonard was not there. But there were a lot of the same pieces from that 09 defense that Rex had number one in the league. You had Chris Jenkins, who was only there part of the year in 09, who that may have been the best Jets defensive lineman season I've ever seen. They still had Sean Ellis, the young David Harris. Kerry Rhodes at safety was really good. Rivas, it's not like Revis went from being this ordinary guy in a way to being the, the best corner in the league. And no, no, Revis was really good. In a, and GD just did not get enough out of them. I thought he made bad coordinator hires. And I mean, here's the other, here's the thing with Favre. There, I think there are two things with Favre I, I want to bring up. The first is that imagine he was, he was not awful. He was, he was, I would say he was, he was good in the early part of the season. He wasn't as good as people remember, though. I mean, his month of October was very three. Inter, I looked this up: three touchdowns, seven interceptions in October. Half of the interceptions came the first two months of the season. If you now, I know you get a little dicey taking games out, but like, Favre had a six touchdown game against Arizona where he was spectacular. Outside of that pre injury, his touchdown to interception ratio was about one to one. So. It wasn't quite as good as people remember, but the other point I want to make is this is, again, this is more anti-Mangini than it is Tannenbaum, but it just drives me crazy when people say, well, Mangini was great and Favre got hurt. The point where Favre gets hurt, that's when you turn to the run game, and the Jets had that offensive line, and that's what they did the next year with Mark Sanchez. They just, you know, at some point, it got to a point where they just took the ball out of the quarterback's hands and just ran behind that big offensive line, ground and pound, and they made it happen. And I guess the other point I'm going to make with uh, with when it comes to Mangini is I I, I just it drives me, I'm sorry it just drives me crazy that Mangini, <laughs> that this revisionist history has come up with Mangini. Mangini they played a game in Seattle Week 16 that year Seattle's entire offensive line starters were on injured reserve the Jets did not have a single sack in that game and the other uh, the other point I was going to make is. You know, we talk about Mangini's drafting and you you may have said, well, when he left, it was a coach centric. Maybe you're arguing it was the, the scouting was more coach centric. Well, a lot of the key assistants stayed. So it's not like it's not like there was this rapid turnover in the front office. So I guess that's another point. I just want to make the idea that, you know, Mangini leaving was like the, the downfall of the scouting department. It was the same scouting department, same front office. So anyway, I, out of my system, I just I, it, when people praise man when people act like Mangini was this great coach who got you know who got run out because of Favre I just it just drives me crazy
1: yeah I'm, I'm gonna agree with you there I, I, I'm not impressed with you Mangini it never was um but uh yeah it just it was uh it was a lost opportunity though, I think if Favre stayed healthy I think it might have been an interesting season because they were really on a roll it, it, it look it had an
0: impact there's no question it had an impact he was a shell of himself down the stretch and that clearly yeah. hurt the team and I'm not arguing that like that had no impact. it, it had a profound impact but when your memory fades and like a narrative is that easy to come by, <laughs> sometimes you forget about how bad some some of the things were. I mean, Bob right. Sutton was a, Bob Sutton was a good coach. He was not a guy you wanted as your defensive coordinator. Like he he was a, he lasted with a number of Jets coaching staff, was a very good position coach, but he was not really the guy you wanted as your defensive coordinator. And we've been through Brian. We'll probably we could write a book on Brian Schottenheimer who Mangini brought to the team. So. Let's move forward. Just as Mike Tannenbaum built the Jets in his early days as general manager, you, mean, you may need to build your car. And with the ever-increasing number of makes and models, it's impossible for your local chain auto parts store to stock all the parts you need. You have to endure pointless questioning, and you have to wait because the person behind the counter is ordering parts on their computer, but they're choosing the only brand their warehouse happens to carry. You have computers with access to rockauto.com at home and in your pocket. You can save time and money when using Rock Auto. It's a family business serving do-it-yourselfers for over 20 years, and their prices are reliably low for every customer. You can go explore their easy-to-use website today to find the solution to your auto parts needs. Rockauto.com is sponsoring today's episode. Go there right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck, and write locked on in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know we sent you. Amazing selection? Reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. So we get the Jets bring in Rex. And by the way, like one thing I'll say for Tannenbaum is I think he was probably, he probably had something to do with Mangini getting fired after 08. And I'm sure that was tough on him because as I mentioned, like they were together in Cleveland the rumors always been that Tannenbaum was one of the people in 06 when they hired man GD Tannenbaum was one of the people who really pushed for him. So, I mean, we don't know what happened. It may have just been Woody being Woody and just making an impulsive move, but I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised just if Tannenbaum had something to do with that. And I, I imagine it was very difficult. He, he was, he watched that team deteriorate down the stretch, understanding that they needed to make a change. Yeah, they definitely needed to make a change. I, I yeah, but it had to
1: be difficult for him. But
0: yeah, then then Rex
1: comes in, and it's a completely different ballgame. What a circus that was! <laughs>
0: and you know, here's the thing: I forgot. So Farve retires after the 08 season. This is another, this is another piece of revisionist history. People say, "Well, what if Farve was here under Rex?" Well, first of all, nobody wanted Farve back at that point. Now I know Rex, maybe Rex made a push for him. I don't know, but in the fan base, people were done with Farve. The trade was viewed as a bust. And actually, like I, I still think, knowing what we know today, like I'll still defend the Farve trade because. Pennington at that point had a certain ceiling. You're probably ceiling was probably a division title, which he got in Miami he beat the jets. So it looked really bad for them, but you weren't really going anywhere with Pennington. I, I did not think far made the jets a super bowl team, but given the circumstances, I felt like he gave the jets a higher ceiling and they really, they, they structured the trade in a way that took the risk out. Because at the end of the day, the Jets only gave up, I think, a fourth round pick to Green Bay. And it could have escalated all the way to a first if, they, if the Jets made the Super Bowl. It was based on the success Favre had. So I think it was a well-structured deal. And a, a side note is I remember reading in uh Peter King's book. Peter King actually t- claims that he he was part of this the, the Jets getting Favre because he was in touch with Tannenbaum. Peter King, the former runner at SI, who I think is with NBC now, And he mentioned to Tannenbaum that Favre never – Favre, which is the same same with me, is if he doesn't recognize a number on his phone, he doesn't pick up. So Tannenbaum (laughs) texted Favre because he was trying to convince – because Favre wanted to go to Minnesota or Green Bay – or Minnesota or Chicago because he wanted – He wanted to get – he wanted to make Green Bay pay for letting him go. And that's the other point I'm going to make is people talking about what if Favre was here. and Favre was not coming back to the Jets in 9 Favre wanted to either go to Chicago or Minnesota because he wanted to go to the NFC North and make the Packers pay. So it was quite an ordeal. And I don't think he was really ever into being a jet because his focus was really just revenge, but the jets enter the Oh nine off season without a quarterback. And I forgot about this, but they made a big push to get Jay Cutler and the whole saga. There was a whole saga there because Josh McDaniels was hired in Denver. Cutler was coming off a great year. Cutler finished third in the league. He had 4,500 passing yards under Mike Shanahan, you know, the old joke every quarterback's a great fit for the Shanahan offense Jay Cutler was a great <laughs> hit for the Mike Shanahan offense um McDaniels came from New England that was the year Brady was hurt so Matt Castle played pretty well in, in replace in uh Brady's place McDaniels tries to make a trade for Matt Castle and it falls through and Cutler's furious Cutler's like I'm out of here So Cutler demands a trade and the Jets try and get him and I I did not want the Jets to trade for Cutler. I thought, I said at the time, this guy's a fake franchise quarterback. He was never there in a big moment, and which actually, like, aged pretty well. But I look back on this now, and I almost feel like maybe Cutler's career plays out differently. Maybe Tannenbaum's career plays out differently. Maybe Rex's. Maybe they all play out differently because what – the Jets ended up with were teams that were not super quarterback dependent. They just needed somebody to play competently. They could ride the run game. They could ride the defense. If Cutler's winning big games early in his career, I mean, he would have been better than Mark Sanchez. And I feel like everybody would have been better off with the Jets. It's funny because at the time I did not want him. And like the reasons ended up, I think being kind of valid, but I think everybody, maybe Sanchez goes to a place that's more conducive to his development it's, I look back on it now and it's amazing to me because I almost have regret that the Jets did not get color that off season.
1: Yeah, they, they probably wouldn't want to, wouldn't want a Super Bowl if they got cover. Uh, I mean, especially in 2009 when Sanchez was just horrifically bad. Um, yeah, I know he had some success in the off in the, in the postseason, but. Um, it, it, come on, he was throwing like fifteen passes a game.
0: I mean, I mean, let's is, let's put it the the number one run game in the league, the number one defense. They had, I think, a top five special teams unit, and they went nine and seven. What right, Does that exactly. tell you? <laughs> what does that tell it, you?
1: It tells you they're a decent quarterback away from winning the Super Bowl. I think
0: I think they could have won in two thousand nine with Um, but
1: you'll never know. But yeah, it, it would have been been interesting. So it's just sort of back to back, you know, if Favre doesn't get hurt, maybe they could have won a Super Bowl. If they got Cutler, I mean, they, they were this
0: close and
1: they just couldn't, you know, they couldn't make it over the
0: top. And they get to the draft and they trade up for Sanchez. And I was looking through this because I, I was saying maybe there was a veteran stopgap who would have been better, but I, they really weren't. I, the only guy he could come up with was Jeff Garcia, who had a decent 08 with Tampa Bay, but was like 40 years old and never really played again after 08. So he didn't even really like play in the area in the the time frame the Jets could have used him so even looking back on how things went like I don't know what the alternative was to Sanchez because say what you will about Sanchez the Jets would have started Kellen Clemens and Sanchez was much better than Kellen Clemens yes he was
1: well maybe not in 2009 though I mean 2009 Sanchez was oh, do you remember that game Bay.
0: Clemens played against Tampa Bay though I mean it was a disaster yeah he
1: was <laughs>
0: and they won the he game was. because Tampa Bay was so bad but Clemens was just a complete uh, catastrophe in that when there was a game where Sanchez got Sanchez missed because he was injured I don't think I think Sanchez was way better as bad as yeah. Sanchez was in 09 I think he was better than Kellen Clemens yeah that was probably true and during this season the Jets make a trade they go they go get Braylon Edwards and then we move into the Offseason heading into 2010. And this is when the Jets are really loading up because they've gone to the they went to the AFC championship game. If Sean Green doesn't get hurt in the AFC Championship game, I think they may have beaten the Colts. The Jets face this weird, really weird limitation. And of course, it happens to the Jets. It's the final year of the collective bargaining agreement, which means there's no which for whatever reason meant that there was no salary cap in 2010, but there were limitations on teams that had deep playoff runs that year. So if you were in the final four, which the Jets were because they went to the AFC Championship game against the Colts, you could not sign a free agent unless you lost a free agent. And Tannenbaum actually made a really savvy move where he let the kicker Jay Feely go. And because he did that, he was able to sign a free agent. And it ended up being Jason Taylor, who was well past his prime. He was more of a role play. He's a Hall of Famer. He's a role player. And actually, ironically, outside of Tom Brady, maybe the, that generation's biggest Jets antagonist, but... Very savvy move that I think kind of flew under the radar that offseason by Tannenbaum.
1: Yeah, that was an excellent move. Um, and, uh, you know, he Tannenbaum was really shrewd for the first few years of his career. I mean, he brought in so much high-level talent. He, he manipulated the cap well. Problem was, in the end,
0: he left the Jets in just horrific shape. But um, I'll tell you, in the beginning, this was really promising. And, and that's the offseason he traded for Antonio Cromartie. He traded for Santonio Holmes. And the Jets, the Jets have another big year. Uh, The Jets go eleven and five. They beat New England. They they beat New England. I still don't know what happens in in that first half of the AFC Championship game. Maybe it was just that they, it was just the emotional high that they'd slayed the drag and they beat New England the week before in Foxborough. And you have to understand if you were a Jets fan in twenty ten. Jets went in to Foxborough in the, the regular season game. They were nine and two. Patriots were nine and two. His first, you know, the, the first spot in the AFC was on the line, the top seed. Jets get killed. Jets lose forty five to three. An embarrassing game. Six weeks later, they go back to Foxborough. Nobody gives them a chance, and they beat the Patriots. And it was a game they controlled. The Patriots were fourteen and two. They were on a complete. They were on fire at the end of the season. That game against the Jets, they looked unbeatable at that point. And it was a game the Jets were in complete control of, really, from the first quarter beyond. And every time it felt like New England was making a move, the Jets answered.
1: Yeah, the Jets dominated that
0: game. It, it looked
1: a lot closer in the final score because it, it was 28 21. The Patriots
0: scored this late touchdown that ended right. up being meaningless, but they died. Yeah, the Jets but the Jets were, completely dominated. died. They were the better team business. that day. But
1: Absolutely. You know, when you talk about the better team, you know, the Jets from 2006 to 2010, those five years, the first five years of Tannenbaum's um, career with, uh, as a GM, the Jets were um, five and six against the Patriots in those five years. I mean, they, they were they were challenging the Patriots for hegemony g- g- in, the, in, the, in the AFC. And unfortunately, they never could do anything past that. But I mean, the, for a while there, the Jets were right there with the Patriots when no one else in the division ever was. And that's that's really something that's kind of lost in the Mike Timebombs, you know, the, the, the later years. But um, I'll tell you, for a while there, he had the Jets, you know, neck and neck with the Patriots. As a Jets fan, you would go into those games of thinking, you know, we're, we're
0: going to win. We're going to beat these guys. How long has it been since we thought that, you know, a very long time. But that was kind of the dividing line. That was the point where at the end of the 2010 season and. Looking back, I feel like the seeds of the decline were kind of planted up to that point because in getting Mark Sanchez in 09 and they traded up for Sean Green as well. It was another three-player draft. 2010, they made a lot of trades, a four-player draft class. We get to the 2011 offseason, which happens late because the NFL has a lockout. So, the free agency period actually happens in July and August. And it's right at the beginning of training camp. And the training camp began with like a lot of the key free agents on signs. And this is really where I think it all began to go downhill for the Jets. And there are lots of different reasons. I think one of the reasons it went downhill, which was something they did not plan for. Tannenbaum was very aggressive restructuring deals so he could be active in free agency every year. And if you restructure a deal essentially what it means for in most cases is you're reducing a player's cap hit this year but you're guaranteeing him more money next down the line and that means the player going to be that means the player is going to be much tougher to cut down the road and this all works out fine if the cap keeps going up but they just kind of got hit by a bad surprise in tw- the 2011 collective bargaining agreement because at least at the beginning the cap went down which in some ways kind of limited their flexibility so i think that was a factor Another factor that came into play, we'll get to this in a bit, but if you're restructuring guys, and again, you're guaranteeing them more money down the line, that's fine if they keep playing well. Jets had some guys who kind of got old very fast. But, you know, I go back to 2011. I always think kind of the dividing line was Namdi Asimwa, when the Jets the Jets were pursuing him. And at the time, Rivas was the undisputed number one corner in the league. And just as Rivas was the undisputed number one corner, Namdi was the undisputed number two corner in the league. and. The Jets had this – they moved money around. They restructured some deals. And the Asama ended up going to Philadelphia. For like three days, it seemed like he was going to end up with the Jets, and he ended up going back to – he ended up going to Philly, and the Eagles ended up, he ended up being a complete bust for the Eagles. But to me, that's almost like a symbolic dividing line for the Tannenbaum era because that was like the point where the Jets were on top of the world. People say the Jets – you know, it was never a Jets town, New York. It was that – That stretch, like when the Jets were coming off the two straight AFC Championship games, they were in hot pursuit of the top free agent. It was New York really was a Jets town for like that short stretch.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Although they did kind of dodge a bullet with with (laughs) Don.
0: Well, in the end, you would have said it if they had not made some other poor decisions because you know, we could go through the free agents from that year, right? Damian Woody got hurt. At the end of 2010, Wayne Hunter actually played decently in the 2010 playoffs in this place. They gave Wayne Hunter a contract to play right tackle, which ended up being the worst, the, the move that may have killed the 2011 season more than anything else. Cause he was brutal at right tackle, Eric Smith, guy who had been a valuable role player on the playoff teams, the lot previous two years, they decided be, I think it was one of those things they, Thought because they liked him, you know, they use a, a smart guy. He knew the system. They thought he could make it work as a starting safety. Not really. But I think the worst stuff that they did was at the wide receiver position. I, they gave Santonio Holmes a big contract, which I have to admit, I, I was a big Holmes guy at the time. So I got that one completely wrong. He was great the first year, he was really clutch in the contract year. But once he got paid, it was a different story. He ended up really being a negative influence on that team that year. He actually got thrown out of the huddle. It was a big meltdown the last game of the year in Miami when they got eliminated from the from playoff contention officially. They brought in Plaxico Burris, who had not played since 2008. He was out of prison. He was just out of prison. Hadn't played in close to three calendar years. The one that really was just... Looking back on what were they thinking? They brought in Derek Mason, who was like 37, had a horrible attitude. They they essentially had to kick him off the team after like five weeks.
1: Right. He lasted half the season, less than half the season, and he was gone.
0: That was a terrible. This was I mean, this was a brutal. This was a horrible offseason the Jets had in 2011. It's unbelievable yeah, it was how bad as it this was gets. back.
1: Yeah, as bad as it gets, and it, it never got any
0: better after that. <laughs> and I that was beginning at the end. <laughs> and I go back to this, this is like where. I feel like Tannenbaum learned all the wrong lessons because they had brought in guys who are viewed as kind of risks, you know, to varying degrees for different reasons. Holmes was viewed as a risk when they brought him in. Breland, Breland Edwards, who was really good for them for a year and three quarters, was viewed as a risk. Cromartie was viewed as a risk. And they made it work. And I feel like Tannenbaum and Rex, they kind of made it feel – they kind of got it in, in their heads that they could make it work with anybody. And that's where you bring in Plaxico Burris, even though he hasn't played in three years. That's why you bring in Derek Mason – it's even why I think, to a certain extent, they thought they could ha- somehow have Eric Smith be a start. And Eric Smith, it was like a, a meltdown a week. Eric Smith at safety, he was he was the worst Jets on. If Wayne Hunter was the worst Jet on offense that year, Eric Smith was the worst Jet on defense. Yeah, it was brutal watching Eric Smith. He just wasn't suited for that role. But uh, and then you had the
1: Mark Sanchez meltdown at the end of the year with uh, losing the last three games. And they were in the, they were still in player position. They were eight and five. They were they were there to go and it just, it just
0: uh, and see. Uh, this is another one of those things. So, like, I think like there's this perception that the Jets were like on the gearing up. They were going they were going to make another run, and they had that Giants game Christmas Eve and Victor Cruz. Dist- I I'd never bought that team. I thought that <laughs> that team the team was five and five. They they were five and three, and they they had a game against New England for first place in the AFC East. They got killed, and it was the game was actually very tight at halftime, and the Patriots came out and crushed them in the second half. A couple of days later was the, the infamous Tebow game where Tebow had the scramble against the jets and yeah, everybody always complains that their team gets screwed over by the scheduler. That may have been the most legitimate case I've ever, because I've never seen the team. I don't think I've ever seen another case where the team had to play Sunday night and then got the Thursday game. Like you play Sunday <laughs> afternoon, you know, and then they had to fly like all the way out to Denver play at altitude. The defense was just exhausted by the end. And that could have saved us a lot more heartache the next year, I guess. But they're five and five, and then they, they get this very soft stretch of their schedule, and they barely beat a Buffalo team that's in complete free fall. They barely beat a Washington team that's not any good. They crush a Kansas—I I don't remember the exact word of the game, so I remember these are the three games. They beat the Kansas City team that just completely quit on its coach, and they had to fire Todd Haley like right after that game. So I never went. And then they're eight and five. They go and they get crushed by the Eagles the week before the Giants game. So. I never felt like that team – I felt like the the damage had already been done. Like, I was looking – this team was nowhere near as good as it was at 9 to 10. No, it was definitely not
1: as good. But I I still thought they were going to make the playoffs
0: that year at 8-5. So, I guess we're not quite on the same page there. No, I I think if they made the playoffs, they were one and done. My point is this was not a team that could – that was going to go on and run that year.
1: No, I mean, well, you're paying the price at that point with – Draft after draft to just, you know, nothing again. 2008, 2009, 2010, you're getting nothing whatsoever out of those drafts. So at some point, you have the decoration of talent coming in.
0: And as much as anything, Sanchez did not develop at all that year. It's funny because people look at these statistics and they say, well, Sanchez had the best year of his career statistics. He had a great year in the red zone, but if you looked at his development, if you looked at the other parts of the field, he really was not any better. And like a few weeks ago, a few months ago, like I had Sanchez for an interview and he even kind of bristled at the idea. Well, he said, well, 2011 is my best year. And like, I'm trying to be courteous. But I was like, no, it really wasn't. They really weren't that good. They really wasn't that different from your other years, dude.
1: Yeah, it really wasn't. He, he didn't really develop at all. He developed in his second year. He was much better
0: in his second year than he was in his first year. And after that, that was it. There was no more development with Mark Sanchez. He was, he was what he was. He just wasn't good enough. And we get past the 2011 season and the, the locker room melts down. I talked about Holmes getting kicked out of the huddle in Miami the last, last week. It was clear. And Sanchez, for his part, really did not take on a leadership role. They did, he did not take any of the steps they wanted him to take. So we get to this 2012 offseason, and it's a really critical offseason for the Jets. And it's one of the most confounding offseasons I've ever seen. Because Sanchez, as you mentioned, just collapsed down the stretch. So they needed to bring in, they get rid of Brian Schottenheimer, which they initially did not. I mean, they had this press conference. It was the most, I don't think I've ever been so angry at the Jets. I don't think my in my, all the years I've written about the Jets, I have ever been as scathing as I was after they had the press conference at the end of the 2011 season when they initially announced Schottenheimer was coming back. (laughs) Tannenbaum This was a guy who used to write with us, Scott Salmon, always loved this uh, loved this press conference because essentially at this press conference, Tannenbaum announced that Caleb Shaladaroff and Josh Baker, or Josh Baker were the future of the Jets franchise. <laughs> That's right. But they, so, so you got to bring in – so at this point, Sanchez's career is in jeopardy, and you have to bring in a guy who's like a really big-time quarterback guy as your offensive coordinator. And they hired the late Tony, uh, Tony Sperano, who – was an excellent coach if you wanted an offensive line coach. I, I have a lot of respect for him as an off, but he had never run an NFL offense, much less developed to court. Now he was there with Dallas, Tony Romo's first year, but he was running the run game. Todd Haley was in charge of the passing game. So it was a very, a very strange move and it did not really work out. But after that, they made this really weird move where they gave Sanchez an extension. I, I lost my mind when they did that because Sanchez was not, this contract was not close to expiring this is this essentially locked them into Sanchez for a much longer time frame and the thing was even if Sanchez had a great 2012 season they could have given him this exact same contract after the season because they 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 were paying him like a top quarterback
1: that was insane that combined with bringing in Tebow was like I don't (laughs) know what know what you're doing what are you doing? <laughs> I don't,
0: understand, it. This I don't was, understand the strategy. I feel like Tebow, like part of me feels that it was maybe Woody trying to win the back pages because Mangini's talked about how Favre was kind of forced on him by Woody. Tannenbaum said they wanted to replace Brad Smith, who they lost. I don't – it seems like the coaching staff never bought into Tebow. Because, to their credit, I thought this was going to be a big problem because this, on top of everything else you're dealing with with Sanchez, you're bringing in like one of the most popular players in the sport. You really felt like a recipe to undermine Sanchez. And to the coaching staff's credit, they said we, Sanchez is our guy, and they really stuck through San, with Sanchez through thinking – I was really critical. I got to a point where I said, you can't stick with Sanchez. They did not believe in Tebow at in the least.
1: They didn't know what to do with Tebow. I mean, they, did, they, they brought him in. They didn't know what to do with him. They didn't do anything. With, I mean, t- <laughs> that was the most puzzling move I've seen in a while for the Jets. That, that was – I don't know what they were doing.
0: Earlier, McGregor and I talked about the best Jets playoff win of the 21st century. It was a game where they were in New England, big underdogs, just weeks after getting blown out 45-3 to three by the Patriots, but they found a way. And if you laid money down on that game, you probably made a decent amount of money. BetOnline is your number one source for all of your sports betting needs and sports info. So for this year's games when the Jets play, hopefully some of them will be in the playoffs, you can go there. And you can also find all of the latest developments, league reviews, and news BetOnline is your continued source for all of your sports wagering information, including live betting, esports, and scores. And BetOnline remains the best spot for all of your scores, podcasts, and news this season. BetOnline.net is the fastest and easiest way to check out all of your favorite sports and events, including MMA, boxing, and golf, and also football futures. Just head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends and the action. BetOnline, where the game starts. I think we can all agree that Tebow was the wrong move for that team at that time though. It made, I just have a tough time understanding what they were thinking when they, when they made that move. Yeah. I
1: don't. I don't know if it was a Tannenbaum move. I wonder if it was Woody Johnson's move, but I, I have no idea. It, to me, clearly, it was not a Rex move. I mean, he didn't have seemed to know what to do with with, with Tebow. Um, so it's
0: hard to know what how this happened in the first place. But it happened, and it was a disaster. But in some ways, it's kind of emblematic. I think of some of the mistakes Tannenbaum made because I see looking back on it now with some hindsight, you, you see the mistakes. And one of them, as I mentioned earlier, is I think they had they got it in their heads because they made it work with all those other guys. We could just make it work with anybody. We'll bring him in; it'll be fine. I think another mistake, and you made you alluded to this a little bit earlier. Another mistake that they clearly made was they just there was never any big picture thinking. There was never any thinking about tomorrow. They were constantly restructuring deals. Bart Scott got restructured. Calvin Pace got restructured. They got old really fast, and it ties in with the other issue is that they kept trading draft picks. Now, in my opinion, if they're not the worst team at managing the cap. They've been one of the worst. It's the New Orleans Saints in recent, recent years. But the reason they've been able to stay competitive, first of all, is Drew Brees. But second of all is because they've had this influx of young talent because they've drafted as well as any team in the league. And drafting well makes up for a lot of mistakes. If you Even if you run your cap poorly, if you draft really well, you can make it happen. But Tannenbaum kept trading away all the draft picks. so. One way to avoid a team that's in, one way to avoid losing when you're in a team that's got a bunch of guys getting old and you're in cap trouble is you bring in young, cheap talent through the draft. And Tannenbaum just gave away all the picks. So even when they were winning in 0, 09 and 10, these three, four man draft classes, I think, really came back to bite them.
1: No, huge, huge problem. Part of it, I think, is um, Tannenbaum was um, hurt by the uh, introduction of the uh, rookie wage scale. And um, that uh, those draft picks became a whole lot more valuable from 2011 on, and it um, just didn't happen. And uh, and uh, he also didn't was wasn't able to really uh, trade draft picks the way he used to trade back picks for premium talent because teams now valued those draft picks much more more highly, and that sort of hurt the way he operated, I think. And he couldn't really adjust to the uh, post 2011 schedule uh, uh,
0: uh, scheme, I think. And I'm sure I'm going to make people angry with me because this was like the duo that produced the greatest jets teams of my lifetime. But in the long run, maybe not in the short run, but in the long run, I think he and Rex were a bad fit for each other because Rex was the ultimate guy who never thought two steps ahead. I mean, there was a game in Miami Rex's first year where the dolphins were like on the goal line about to win the game. They're about to go ahead in the fourth quarter. Rex did not call a timeout to preserve time for his offense. And he said, well, I wasn't even thinking of that. I thought we were going to get the stop. And that was <laughs> Rex's mentality. It's one of the reasons everybody loved Rex is that mentality. But Rex was never a big picture thinker. Rex was never a guy who could think two steps ahead. And I think Rex needed somebody. I think Rex, in a different circumstance, maybe could have turned out better over the long... Again, the short run was great. But over the long run, it really did not work out for Rex. I think Rex needed the GM to say no. And you look after that 20... Maybe after the 2010, definitely after the 2011 season... There was probably a point where the Jets just needed to say, you know what, we need to kind of have a reset year. We'll get our cap in order. Maybe we're not going to compete for the Super Bowl this year. It just was never going to – it just didn't fly with Tannenbaum. Tannenbaum, I think, just gave Rex whatever he wanted.
1: Yeah, it would have been better. He Rex was a uniquely undisciplined individual. <laughs> it would have been nice to have discipline from above, but it didn't happen.
0: But I blame Tannenbaum more because, I mean, at the end of the day, like, you always need kind of a balance. You need every successful team kind of balances their short term and with the long run. And the guy who needs to look at the long run is the GM. The head coach has to look the day-to-day. He's the guy preparing for the next game. So unless you're Belichick, there really aren't many coaches who get the long run. Tannenbaum is a GM. And it makes me wonder whether he ever could last long in a place. He just, he never felt like he was ever thinking past today it never felt like he was thinking two three years down the line and it's frustrating because the jets had this core that he drafted he they had to break off work. they had a super bowl core. if they had filled in the right pieces around these guys this window could have lasted maybe five to seven years
1: yeah i think it, it was cut short unfortunately but I, i'll tell you what i what he did for those first five years of his, of his, his he was one quarterback away from winning and that's, a Super Bowl.
0: That's the key then, is ultimately you can't recover. If, Mark's, if Mark Sanchez turned out the way they thought Mark Sanchez was going to turn out, we're having a different discussion. It shows you just, it shows you how much missing on the quarterback damages the franchise. In some ways you could say the Jets have never recovered from Mark Sanchez being a bust because it led to the next mistake, which led to the next mistake, which led to the next mistake. It's really this absolutely. existential thing for a franchise.
1: Absolutely. And if, and if Chad Pennington wasn't broken down or if Brett, Brett Favre wasn't broken down, I mean, he, he was just he was one quarterback away, one good full season away from, I think, a Super Bowl title. And he never got there. But if he had done that, if that had happened, you know, that's a little bit of luck of the draw. If that had happened, I think would have used Mike Tenenbaum was very different. I think it was said, like, you know what, he put a tremendous amount of talent and he won
0: for us. But
1: it didn't happen
0: it's a great, it shows you just how thin the line is between success and failure. I, I think back to the Baltimore Ravens, you know, everybody remembers the 2000 Ravens, that dominant defense, What people forget is they had like a six year stretch where they wasted historic defenses. Cause they could not figure out the quarterback position and I'll take it one step further in the 07 draft, Ozzie Newsome tried to trade up for Brady Quinn. The next year they got Joe Flacco and Flacco kind of stabilized the position and finally gave them what they needed. If they get Brady Quinn. They never take Joe Flacco. They don't win that second Super Bowl. Ozzie Newsom's probably remembered Ozzie Newsom's probably remembered as the guy who screwed up a legendary defense who only got one championship out of a legendary team. It can be, it, it's, we don't like to think of this. We don't like to, we like to think that the guys who are going to succeed are always going to figure out a way that luck has nothing to do with it. But maybe it was just one of these things at quarterback. That's the difference between us talking about Mike Tannenbaum and a, what could have been sense versus us talking about Mike Tannenbaum as a legendary GM.
1: I really think so. I think if we had just had one really good, not even like a top of the league, Tom Brady, no, just a good quarterback, I think we would have won one Super Bowl, maybe more, and a little bit of very different discussion we had here today.
0: Well, you know, we did our first show in this series about Terry Bradway, and one of the first comments in YouTube was that was a really depressing half hour. <laughs> <laughs> so the problem is, I don't think we're going to get any better going forward, which. My, this is not my favorite. I'll tell you my favorite YouTube comment was the first day we were on YouTube when somebody left the comment. Dude, I can't believe you're not 300 pounds. That's always what I figured. <laughs> wow. Why would they think that of you? I don't understand that one at all. <laughs> but anyway, it's been a pleasure discussing Mike Tannenbaum with you. In these first couple Jets GMs, we at least have some good things to talk about. Our next topic is going to be the John Itzik era. And I feel like, that YouTube comment about how things were depressing under Bradway. It's not going to get better.
1: Best thing we can say about John it is he wasn't
0: Mike McKagan. <laughs> but that is a story for another day. It was nice chatting with you, my friend. You too. Always pleasure. That's all for today's episode. This has been the Locked On Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. As always, if you enjoy the show, hit that subscribe button. Big thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube. Good review if you're listening on a podcast source. Have a great Thursday, everybody. Can't wait for next time when we'll talk about John Idzik.